You are listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders, for that moment in your career when the buck stops with you. This is your window into the world of how to lead successfully. Now, over to your host, James Nagel. Welcome to a new episode of the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders. I'm your host, James Nagel, and my guest today is James Ashton who has just released his new book, The Nine Types of Leaders, How the Leaders of Tomorrow Can Learn from the Leaders of Today. And as always on this podcast, we'll discuss it from the perspective of those in the hot seat for the first time, not yet global CEOs perhaps, but with aspirations. So first, let me tell you about James. He's a renowned journalist who's worked with all the top uh, English titles, Sunday Times, etc. He's also an author and now a podcaster. James has had unrivaled access to the FTSE CEOs and key personalities over the past 20 years. My favorite review of the new book goes like this. Business leaders are peculiar and brave. Few aspire to it, even fewer succeed. James has shrewdly tabulated his own butterfly collection of this exotic breed. Long on narrative, short and jargon, and very entertaining. So, James, you've nothing to live up to today. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, James. And I, I, I do like that um, that endorsement. That was uh, Sir Peter Balzagiet at ITV, and and he, um, yes, he's a very creative type, and he, he's very good with words. And it was very nice of him to sum it up like that. So, look, without doubt, your book will help any aspiring leader to understand the game a little bit better. Uh, now, all of these leaders have confidence. They've got ambition. They've got energy. But paint us a little bit of a picture of the nine types. So let me take you through the nine types, James. Um, first of all, I've got uh, alphas, fixers, and lovers. So the alphas are those very uh, typical male-dominated traditional uh, leaders with a with a accumulated power base around them. The fixers are those people um, that really are run into those crisis situations they know how to pull the levers and um, save companies that look to be in terrible trouble and the lovers are very uh, much the passionate bosses I, I think they're very very believable um, they're the ones that um, that absolutely love what they're doing whether they're um, selling books or or running gyms uh, there's various other examples um, so the next three are founders scions and sellers and i think we know founders they're the people that set up the company from the um kitchen table and build it up they're very very entrepreneurial the signs are the people they hand over to so the sons and daughters that inherit the family business and then decide how they're going to run that what they're going to to do with their legacy and the sellers i found um particularly interesting these are the people who've come up through the sales and marketing route in their companies and i think knowing your consumer and knowing your product uh, has made them very very uh, effective ceos in in the modern era finally the last three are the diplomats the campaigners and the humans the diplomats are those bosses um typically might have been elected so you see them in uh, accounting and, and legal firms they're very very um consensual types of leaders because they've effectively got 900 uh, partners on their shoulder the campaigners are those that have been very effective um matching purpose with 
profit, they know they can use their company as a, as a platform um, for the the greater good, whether that's helping the environment or um, their local um, community. And finally, the humans. I think this is the forward-looking leadership type. These are the bosses who I think understand that companies are more porous than ever these days. They operate very effectively in the Glassdoor era. Um, they are very happy and comfortable listening to people on the factory floor and acting on what they hear. They're happy to uh, admit their mistakes. Very, very honest. I think they're very uh, digitally savvy, um, but they also have sufficient resolve to to make the decisions that need to be taken going forward. Once again, we've got a list of types. As, as you'll be familiar, you know, candidates for jobs get psychometric t- to death and they'll all know their color, whether they're a red, a yellow, a blue or a green. So the big question is, once you're aware of your type, which is clearly critical, what would you like them to do with that information? If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to test your own readiness for the hot seat, then take the Leadership Readiness Scorecard. Details in the show notes and on swimnotsync.com. Well, I think self. Yeah, you, you, you're absolutely right. I think self awareness is is the thing, and and so often I've interviewed bosses who who I think um, don't know don't know what they are and where they fit, and they try to be something they're not. I think this book is is very very readable. I think through it they. Um, a reader can learn about how leaders have picked up skills and how they've deployed them, and they've done that through their career. So, the, so the opening, um, the opening couple of chapters very much looks at how how CEOs get there. Before we talk about how they stay there and how they act in role, it's very much how they get there. And there's some, I think, there's some good things um, near the start. And I think some of it's obvious, but I think given given the case studies and the um, uh, the breadth of CEOs I've talked to, I think it's good to tease some of these things out. Things like follow your heart. It's no use trying to to reach the top unless you you've you've found something you enjoy. You're in the right field. Um, I think what came through very strongly in in reinterviewing a lot of the people for the book is um, is you have to have the confidence to challenge your superiors. And some of this is um, is embedded in some of the most success- successful companies. So you look at how McKinsey has grown up over the years. One of their core principles was this obligation to dissent, and it comes up again in in some of the principles when Amazon looked to look to hire. And I think also one of the things about getting to the top, and there's good examples in the book, is uh, is find a mentor. Um, I think the there there's a lot of commonality between. Um, you know, a lot of those leaders who get to the top reached up through the organization early on, or else someone reached down to them. And then I think also, which is less publicized, is they also reach out. So often when I interview leaders, particularly for the podcast, um, which is called Leading, they talk about external mentorship. They talk about people who are nothing. They might be um, in from public to private sector. They might be not quite a friend at the pub, but someone they can have that regular um conversation with so i think that's the that's the first point about um you know how you um position yourself i think it's good to know your fit um i think clearly uh opportunities come to you as you become a first-time leader and you're going up through an organization um but i think uh you that self-awareness guides you towards the the challenges that um that do fit you as opposed as opposed to um to, to those that don't you know i think most people would say that uh, true success is when your your timing is right when the opportunity 
that presents itself matches what what you bring. So let's maybe break that into the two parts. In terms of the individual, how many of the characters that you've observed over those, you know, 20 years, maybe when you saw them coming through to when they became CEOs, how many of them have changed or do they just double down on on, on their core strength, whether that's a, a fixer or a lover? So how many of them ch- manage to change? I don't think they change as much as they think they do. And it's worth um, pointing out, as I say in an, in an early chapter, I don't really think... Uh, we all enjoy reading books like this, I hope, but I don't think leaders particularly enjoy being pigeonholed. Leaders like to be seen to be all things to all men and women. They like to be known for their versatility as much as for their um, the shareholder return that they deliver and so on. But just, just coming back onto the, the question of have people changed? Because when I when I think personally, I see very few examples of it. Partly because, as you've said, they move up. The they move up. They get into the top position, and then it's a short time frame. They don't have time. I mean, they 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 revert to type because they need to play on their strengths. But one person is Paul Pullman, and has he is he an example of someone who's changed? I think Paul didn't change. Um, he'd he'd been through. I mean, he'd done all of FMCG. I think because he'd been at Nestle briefly. He'd also been a long time at P and G. I think. Um, I think what's interesting is. Paul always knew and said, um, if I don't deliver the profit, I can't do any of the other stuff, I I paraphrase, um, which was right. Uh, However, I think his legacy at Unilever is that he was far better at the other stuff. It's interesting when when you're that archetype, that campaigner, and you have so many success points you could measure, how how do you say whether he did, whether he did, whether he left Unilever in, in great shape or not. Well, actually, my view is simply from launching something like the Sustainable Living Plan, which he did a decade ago, which put all these targets out there to reduce water use, to um, help consumers with um, with their sanitation and so on, was a success because it it was kind of launched the face that launched a thousand ships, if you like. In, in another interview, you were you were asked, you know, are C- how sexy are CEOs and why are they not as prominent as, let's say, football managers? But... I think the Pullman journey, he's definitely moved beyond just being CEO of a big company. That that campaigner role projects you into the the, the wider world. You know? It does, and actually that, but that is one of this is where you have to be. I think you have to be really careful in how um, you apportion time and you apportion uh, you know your profile, if you like, because the the big criticism of Paul Pullman is. Um, he spent, uh, you know, too long um, on these platforms, whether it's with the World Bank or Davos. And actually, he, he uh, you know, could Unilever have, have fared better if he'd just have stuck to the knitting? So that, that actually leads on nicely to the next question, which is no one sets out to be a bad leader. No. So it's, it comes down to the selection process. Let's call it the board looking at what the future context is going to be and then deciding whether you want a lover, a fixer, or a campaigner, or whatever, to do that job. So in your experience, can you give examples of where you could see that it was either a strong match or a weak match? Just sort of day one where you, you know, you did the classic newsroom thing and said, this isn't going to work or this is just by matching those two things, what was the need and what was the skill of the individual? 
Yeah, well, I'd I'd love to say I nailed all these on day one, James, but um, you 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 might not believe me. It's not all down to the candidate. If someone comes to you and says, "Do you want to be CEO?" The, there's only one answer, um, but it uh, the 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 choice making is down to the board supported by um, the headhunter, and I think it's 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 really hard. The um, risk appetite is absolutely. Um, plunged. There's a lot more at stake than there was for running some of these companies, um, say, even 10 years ago. So wherever possible, um, th- a good company likes to show it's got good bank strength. It's it's great to a point from within. I see Dame Sharon White. She, she's been in the civil service. She uh, was at Ofcom for many years. I'm not convinced she's the right person. I see her as a diplomat. I'm not, see her, I'm not sure she's the right person to go into John Lewis right now um, because I think if John Lewis is going to be with us a generation from now um, it needs top to toe shake up it needs a um, take no prisoners fixer to get into to that business and I just wonder whether um, whether evolution is going to cut it I mean have you got one of a good fit yeah okay I think a really I think a really good fit and must I'll stay in in uh, retail is um, is when James Daunt was put in at Waterstones, which is the big uh, the, the the big UK book retailer, and I call James a, a lover. I mean, he was, and he only ever wanted to be uh, a bookseller. When Waterstones was bought by uh, a Russian investor, uh, they came looking for James to effectively. Can you come into Waterstones and can you revive the the competition effectively? And um, I think. When you have a company that that its future is really really in doubt, and you need to pick people up from the floor, I think if you can come in and say, "Look, this is me. I'm I'm a, I'm a total bookworm. This is this is my career." I think actually it's that passion, not overused word, that really gets people behind you, that gets the the followership. And he had to do tough stuff. He had to rip out a layer of middle management because you have to. Um, you know, you have to save the patient. You have to do certain things which are going to be tough. But he also did things that are um, that I don't think a fixer would do. That I think actually someone with a real commercial mindset wouldn't do. Waterstones at that time was selling the shop window, so um, people publishers were paying millions of pounds across the across the estate to put their books in the shop window, big banners, and to to flog them for, to the passing trade. He he ripped that out. He said, "I'm." I'm handing controls back to the local uh, bookstore managers. You know what's going to sell in your community. You know what's a good read. We're not taking this money anymore. I mean, it was millions of pounds, but um, I want us to be a, a, a credible retailer of books. So I think if you do, if you can do that sort of thing and you get everyone behind you, and it's been a great success. It's been such a success. He's been transplanted to the US to do it with Barnes & Noble. I really like that story, and it definitely goes against the, let's call it the conventional wisdom. Of the nine types, even the fact that one of them is called the human <laughs> indicates that that's maybe the desirable one. You know, from your experience, you know, is that a fashion, or do you think that the human is is the, the, the archetype which is going to win going forward? I think it is the one I, I I invest most in as the as the future type, and I think it's I think it says something about those 
leaders who can uh you know we we talk a lot about uh bringing our whole self to work these days wherever work happens to be even if it's not in in the office but i think those leaders who are the humans who can have um a very honest conversation with their staff as with the media as with um you know suppliers they they can fess up when things go wrong um and but they still have um you know sufficient resolve to make the big decisions i think there that is very much the the path forward that brings us to the the sort of ending part of the book where you you look forward in the covid environment and you talk about what's coming up lots of cost cutting flattening of hierarchies digitization and remote working so there's a couple of things i'd like to tease out there one linking to what you just said how important or how vital is it to be a great communicator going back to you know in politics it was reagan that really revolutionized that in terms of you know was he was he on top of all the detail no no one cared he was the great communicator how important is that now when in a remote world i think it's important uh, i think it's hugely important now and i think there's something changed and it was i don't know whether it was last may or june or whatever if you'd have talked to a CEO, say, a year ago about everyone's going to work remotely, th- there was very much a thing about how do I get the best slash the most out of my workforce? You know, do I trust them enough to do it in the spare room and so on? And I think you fast forward a few months into into lockdown, and I think the best leaders um, have been able to communicate with their staff and really think of them as a as a community i talked to a boss yesterday and he said that he did a call with uh with the vast majority of his workforce uh, a few weeks ago and simply the fact that he said it's great that there are seven thousand of us here on this call today he had a lot of feedback because people hadn't uh felt a part of something for quite a while so i think really acknowledging that that community and i think also um it's those that have switched from what can i get from my workforce to are they okay? The ones that are really thinking about this duty of care, and it's typically the 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 twenty somethings, the newish recruits who who need, I think, that reassurance. Um, those that have gone up through an organisation, have got their networks and their responsibility, are probably having a, a, a much nicer time. So I think, yeah, that communication is key. I think that's on the sort of more the EQ side now. Now on the delivery side, and and you mentioned it when we were talking about Paul Pullman. How much is it down to the numbers and the profit imperative? I think you do have to hit the numbers, or I think you need, you know, a journalist would fall back on storytelling, wouldn't he? But I think the some of the best CEOs from almost all categories, they need to have a, they need to be able to take everyone, the staff, um, suppliers certainly the shareholders on a journey here's what we're setting out to do and here's when we're going to 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 get there and this is this you know pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and so on i think back to someone like marjorie scardino who led pearson um and she took pearson from a uh it was a great old conglomerate of which we don't have anymore i mean when, when she came in which i think was back in 1997 um pearson um, was involved in the production company that made Baywatch. I think there was uh, Madame Two Swords was in there, Chateau Latour, and she said she even found an avocado farm. Um, it was just lots and lots of different things. And she zeroed in on education 
as as it was a small division and she she thought this is the future and this is something that will grow and people will pay for and it will digitize and i think to be able to um you need you need a great narrative and uh you know force of will i put her in the alpha category because i think there are positives to to to, to alphas the numbers were absolutely up and down people uh, stuck with her. I think what came after was harder, but I think she drove through what she in, what she intended to do, even though it was it was very very lumpy uh, along the way. Yeah, sounds like politics. The conviction politician. Close, close, closing up now. Um, it's clear that you're a believer in the leader as an individual, right? You've written the book about the type rather than the teams and something more amorphous. So what's your advice for people on the cusp of the hot seat? Well, I think I do. Um, you know, my currency has been the CEOs and, and there's so many instances where I've been offered, um, you know, the, the deputy this or the FD. I think, I, you know, I'm not really interested. And I think sometimes the CEOs who don't want to be interviewed do say, um, it's not me, it's the team. And I don't really buy that. I never buy that because there always has to be one person, a figurehead, there has to be someone. So that's why I'm in, I, I, into them. I think for people on the cusp of the hot seat, I think there are a few things. I think you need to have, um, and, and it seems to me one of the one of the things that might get you into the hot seat is to demonstrably show that you've broken out of your silo, whether that's finance or marketing or tech or whatever it is, and you have a a, a bit more. Um, breadth about you i think there's something about capability and um and approachability I, but i think coming into the hot into the hot seat i think it's about having your own ideas um not i mean even a continuity candidate i think needs to have a sense of what they will do with an organization or a div division where they will take it and how they um, express that and then as i said earlier i think so often um, media is seen as the um, is seen as an an afterthought. If people have come up through an organisation, it's been quite uh, insular, if you like. They haven't been talking to the outside world. So I think those ideas about um, your uh, how people how people see you, how people regard you, what your voice is, how you talk authentically, how you um, um, uh, you know, so many people, I, a few people I've interviewed, you can tell they haven't done it much before and they're a bit nervous. And as a result, they repeat themselves um, and it, it's it's very, very uh, corporate. And for those uh, and for those interactions, I would say, look, um, you, you probably prep if you go into uh, a, a meeting with a possible um, uh, future customer or with uh, you know a, a new lawyer or whatever else it is. I mean, to, you know, take these interactions seriously because the talking to the Daily Mail or the Times or it is not a it is not an isolated incident. You know, you're not just talking to the readers of the Daily Mail, for example. Also include your staff, your suppliers, your your shareholders. So I think you have to think, uh, you know, quite quite broadly about that about how you express yourself. So final question, James, what's next for you? What's the next book? I do hope, James, there's still plenty of conversations to be had about the nine types of leader yet. Very good. Okay, we'll leave on that note. Thanks a lot, James. Thank you. You've been listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast. Subscribe at swimnotsink.com 
forward slash podcast.